Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, the book of Amos, chapter 7. Well, the main two roles of a biblical prophet were first to be an intercessor who is to speak for and defend the people of Israel. Second, a messenger from Jehovah who is to announce a warning or a coming judgment. In Amos chapter 7, we find our prophet doing both. Open your Bibles to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7 and read along with me, please. Amos chapter 7. Starting with verse 1. Here is what Adonai Elohim showed me. He was forming a swarm of locusts as the late crop was starting to come up, the late crop after the hay had been cut to pay the king's tribute. While they were finishing up eating all the vegetation in the land, I said, Adonai Elohim, forgive, please, how will tiny Yaakov, how will tiny Jacob survive? So Adonai changed his mind about this. It won't happen, Adonai said. Next, Adonai Elohim showed me this. Adonai Elohim was summoning a blazing fire to consume the great abyss, and it would have devoured the land too. But I said, Adonai Elohim, stop, please. How will tiny Yaakov survive? Well, Adonai changed his mind about it. This too won't happen since Adonai, said Adonai Elohim. Then he showed me this. Adonai was standing by a wall made with a plumb line, and he had a plumb line in his hand. And Adonai asked me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And then Adonai said, I'm going to put a plumb line in among my people Israel. I will never again overlook their offenses. The high places of Itzhak, Isaac, will be desolate. Israel's sanctuaries will be destroyed, and I will attack the house of Jeroboam, Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent this message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is conspiring against you there among the people of Israel, and the land can't bear all that he's saying. For Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword. Israel will be led away from the land into exile. Amatia also said to Amos, Go away, seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your living there. Don't prophesy. Go prophesy there. But don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, for this is the king's sanctuary. It's a royal temple. Amos gave his answer to Amatia. I'm not trained as a prophet. I'm not one of the guild prophets. I own sheep. I grow figs. But Adonai took me away from following the flock, and Adonai said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So now, hear what Adonai says. You say, Don't prophesy against Israel. Don't lecture the people of Isaac. Therefore, Adonai says this, Your wife will become a whore in the city. Your sons, your daughters will die by the sword. Your land will be parceled out with a measuring line. You yourself will die in an unclean land, and Israel will certainly be exiled from their land. Now the first thing to know about chapter 7 is that it really ought not end at verse 17, where it typically does. The thought process of the narrative that includes a series of visions that, that forms the basic structure of chapter 7 flows right on into what our Bibles say is chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Now, I'll remind you, it was well more than a thousand years after the Bible was completed that chapters and verse numbers were first added to the text. They had never before existed. And in fact, the first of several attempts at doing this are not how we typically see it ordered in our Bibles today. Now the standard way our English Bibles, uh, Bible books are divided into chapters and verses today didn't happen till about the 16th century. 
upon the creation of the Geneva Bible. Therefore, since many arbitrary decisions necessarily were made about where to begin, where to end chapters within any Bible book, and how to define the length of a verse and also to number it, we find that the current system can at times confuse and mislead, with the result that one time an ongoing thought pattern is prematurely interrupted, another time a new thought pattern gets added to a section of the Bible where it doesn't belong. Amos chapter 7, as it's structured in modern times, is one of these cases. Now, nonetheless, we'll go ahead and study this chapter just the way our Bibles have it in order to maintain continuity. But when we get to chapter 8, I'll remind you that the first three verses of chapter 8 are really better placed as the final three verses of chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 amounts to a series of visions about what God intends to do to Israel as punishments for the rebellion against Him. Amos responds to the first two visions of doom by interceding for Israel and then God relenting. In the next two visions, God interrogates Amos, Amos answers, but God responds that He will not relent. The bottom line is that while God indeed will not visit upon Israel some of the horrors that He shows Amos in these four visions, on the other hand, Israel will still be devastated by an enemy and the survivors exiled to a foreign land. The chapter opens immediately with just such a vision of a God-ordained catastrophe. Now, the first vision is about an invasion of locusts. Now, I want to point out an issue that we're going to find in practically all translations of verse number 1. It is that in the original Hebrew, God's formal name, Yehoveh, Yudhevavheh, is written, but it's not used in English or even in modern Hebrew Bibles. The complete Jewish Bible, for example, instead of saying Yehoveh, says Adonai Elohim. But the word Elohim does not appear in the original Hebrew manuscripts. More usual in English Bibles are the words, Lord God. But the Hebrew word for God, which is Yah, also isn't in the original Hebrew. The correct translation, then, in verse 1 is, Lord Yehoveh. Now, locusts are sort of the Middle Eastern version of the Black Plague. They are actually grasshoppers that come from eggs hatched in the spring and then soon swarm in gigantic numbers and were an unstoppable force of complete destruction of the food crops that they invaded. This verse seems to imply that there were two cuttings, two crops involved. The first crop, or, or cutting, going to the king, King Jeroboam, more or less as kind of a tax. So it was the second cutting or crop that the common people relied upon as their own food source or from which they could trade or barter or sell it. Now, according to the Hebrew calendar, this locust invasion would have been in the months of Shabbat and Adar and therefore consisted more of an attack on the vegetable crops rather than on the grain crops. Now, the vision Amos saw of the grasshoppers' invasion seems to occur then at the time just after the first crop was already safely har harvested and given to the king, and just before the second was ready for the picking. This timing would have meant starvation or at least great hunger for many people, and since some of their livestock were fed by those hay cuttings, it would have included a loss of those livestock that were dependent on that food source. 
You know, in other words, so far as it directly affected the common citizen, the envisioned locust plague is carefully timed by Yehovah so as to provide maximum damage. This locust disaster is a God-directed curse for Israel's rebellion, and it's specifically called for in the Law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 42, All thy trees and the fruit of thy land shall the locust possess. Now Amos would have understood this vision as calling for the northern kingdom to become utterly denuded of vegetation, making the lives of humans and animals essentially impossible. Now somehow in this vision, it is as though Amos has been transported across time and dimensions to stand in the very presence of God, such that he sees a potential, a potential future scenario unfolding. I underline again the term potential, because clearly it was a future event not yet written in stone. In response, Amos pleads for the Lord to not bring this calamity of locusts upon Israel. And his petition is interesting, because in, a, in it a very specific Hebrew word is used to describe what it is he asks of God. And that word is salach, salach. Now while salach is often translated as forgive in English Bibles, it is a little better nuanced to mean pardon. Now there are a few Hebrew words that can be translated as forgive, such as nasah and kafar. But in Biblical Hebrew, salach carries a little different meaning. By extending the idea of forgiveness to the point of complete absolution of the crime. A pardon so thorough that it would be as though the offense never happened. Thus, there would be no need either to punish or to forgive. Now, what seems to me to be kind of a knee jerk, emotionally charged plea, Amos blurts out. How could Jacob, Israel, survive should God bring this locust plague upon them in such a ferocity as he apparently saw in this vision? It so stunned Amos that he responds by taking on the role of a loving and concerned mediator who stands between God and the people. Now, while I can't be certain of it, I think the reason that Amos speaks of Israel as Jacob, Yaakov, in this instance, is to make it more personal. I think it's meant to humanize Israel as a collection of living individuals rather than merely as a political entity, a national collective called Israel. And since Jacob is such a revered patriarch, perhaps it is Amos also calling on God to remember from whence the nation of Israel came, and the great favor He has shown the Israelites over the centuries on account of Jacob's faithfulness. There's one other point I want to make, and perhaps this is one of the most important ones. Despite chapter after chapter of reading about Amos, warning Israel, about their rapidly approaching exile and the destruction of their nation. Clearly to Amos, the words he spoke did not mean a destruction so total that it was the end of Israel as a people group, nor did he see that as God's aim. That is, Amos certainly saw severe punishment that in reality would perhaps mean as much as 90%, let's say, of all of Ephraim Israelites being killed. But even in exile, at least a small remnant would continue on, 
like seeds that are saved from a fire to be used to replant at a later time. Now in the locust invasion vision, apparently Amos saw something so terrible that he took it to mean the 100% annihilation of Israel. And it shocked him enough to spontaneously speak out to Jehovah about it, to put it another way. The vision he saw seemed to indicate to him that Israel, Jacob, could not possibly survive such a thing. So he says to God in verse 2, chapter 7, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, how shall Jacob stand? For he is small. Now in verse 3, Jehovah responds in mercy that it won't happen because he has essentially changed his mind. He has repented, or at least that's the standard way we find it in our Bibles. <clears throat> now the Hebrew word used to describe God's reaction to Amos's plea is Naham, Naham, which is usually translated as repent. However, Naham more leans towards the idea of being comforted as opposed to the Christian view of the term repent, which is to change one's attitude and behavior from bad to good. See, the idea Ponder this for a second. The idea of God repenting, again, in the same way Christians use the word repent, this is not something that ought to ever be applied to Him. It is my opinion the challenge lies in that this Hebrew concept of Naham is difficult to precisely bring across from the Hebrew into another language and culture, so something gets lost in the translation. We assume the wrong mental picture of a God who first decides to do one thing, then rethinks it, and being flexible is sorry for what he first determined to do, so decides to do something else less drastic. Rather, I see the dialogue as God responding to Amos by reassuring him, comforting him, that the vision he saw did not mean that a locust invasion was going to completely wipe out Israel down to the last man, essentially making Ephraim Israel extinct. Thus it is recorded that God says to Amos, it won't happen, with the idea being that Israel will not be completely erased from the planet by means of a plague of locusts, which is what a very deeply shaken Amos incorrectly thought the vision was telling him. Now verse 4 presents a second vision. It's a different vision, fire instead of locusts, but yet they share the common devastating result of devouring and consuming Israel in totality. This fire spoken of is God's wrath, and it is so intense that it can consume everything it comes into contact with. Now, invoking fire as a curse against Israel naturally draws from a curse that's found in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 32.22, For my anger has been fired up, it burns to the depths of Sheol, devouring the earth and its crops, kindling the very roots of the hills. Now notice how this fire burns to the depths of Sheol in Deuteronomy, but here in Amos the parallel term abyss is used. They mean essentially the same things. The thing to always remember about fire, especially as divinely directed fire in the Bible, is that it either completely purifies or it completely destroys. It inherently means a complete purification, never partial, or a complete destruction, nothing remains. 
Now, keeping in mind what we just discussed about that locust invasion as meaning to aim us a total destruction of Israel down to the last man, so did this vision of fire mean the same thing to him. Yet when we have we have a real difficulty here that translators have known about for centuries. Since fire means 100% destruction or purification, and since clearly Israel's not going to be 100% wiped out, then how are we to understand the sense of this vision? We read in Isaiah 66 a very similar thought. In 66.15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, His chariot shall be like the whirlwind, to render His anger with fury, and His rebuke with flames of fire. Now, because the context of this verse does not mean to indicate 100% annihilation, and neither does God speak of 100% annihilation of Israel in the book of Amos, then we have to seek a solution to best explain what it is we're being told. Now, in my opinion, of the few choices available to us, the best that solves the most problems is that Amos's vision is of a scorching heat, a burning heat, a fiery heat that devours the land and the sea. The abyss is always associated with the sea. We find this same concept, by the way, in Joel chapter 1. Therefore, I think this verse, when translated to, to English, ought to read something like this. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by a fiery heat, and it devoured the great deep, and it would have eaten up the land. Now Amos responds in verse 5 by asking God to stop or to cease. Depends on your Bible version. The Hebrew word is chadal, chadal, and it includes the idea of refraining or foregoing an action. Now, I think the much better English word choice, considering the context here, is refrain. So we have Amos saying to God, O Lord God, refrain. Because how will Jacob survive? He's so small. Now, in the first vision, Amos asked God to pardon Israel. In the second vision, Amos asked God to refrain from bringing a fiery heat upon Israel. Now, please continue to notice that Amos is interpreting the vision as fiery heat that is so widespread and severe that Jacob's, that's Israel's, survival down to the last man becomes impossible. God responds in verse 6 to Amos' intercession by saying, This also shall not be. The words immediately before those are, The Lord repented concerning this. Again, using the word Nacham, which I contend ought to be translated as comforted, the Lord comforted him concerning this. Thus, in the second vision that involves the fiery heat, just as with the first vision of the locust, God comforts or consoles Amos's terrible fear by assuring him that what he's being shown does not mean that not even a single person of Ephraim Israel is going to be left alive. Now, for verses 7 and 8, these are a most difficult task to understand, and translators have struggled with these words. Now, for one reason, the Hebrew text that they all have to work from is clearly corrupted. And second, we are very likely dealing with some arcane Hebrew words that had meanings in ancient times that we're just not certain about. But a third reason is that the next two visions of Amos are symbolic, they're not literal. And so it seems that Amos isn't even sure of what they're symbolic of. Now the third vision begins with Jehovah standing by a wall using a, that has been made using a plumb line. At least plumb line is the most typical translation. 
The problem is that the Hebrew word being translated into English as plumb line is anak. And technically it does not mean plumb line. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit technical for a minute for the benefit of those who, of you who like to delve into the, the uh, uh, nuances of Biblical Hebrew. What anak means is plummet. Sometimes it refers to a metal weight. And since a metal weight's used at the bottom of a plumb line, then translators have guessed that a knock is used here to indicate a plumb line. However, there already existed a known Hebrew word for plumb line, and it is kav. Kav. Now we've discussed how some of these ancient Hebrew, uh, ancient and obscure Hebrew words have become better understood recently because of the outstanding research done on language cognates, that is, similar words from other ancient languages to which our target language is related. Now often we have a better understanding of those words' meanings, so we can transfer that same meaning over to the Hebrew word. And since Hebrew and Akkadian are cousin languages, and there is an Akkadian word, anaku, that means tin or lead, then it's likely that the Hebrew anak and Akkadian anaku simply mean the same thing. Tin or lead, probably tin. And that is likely what's meant here in verse 7. Therefore, if this is the case, with the Hebrew Anak, then our verse would read like this. This is what Jehovah showed me. He was standing on a tin wall and he had some tin in his hand. So what we find is that while visions 1 and 2 call out specific punishments, first locusts, then a fiery heat, this third vision changes form. And it is symbolic based on a play on words. As Douglas Stewart points out, thus what Amos sees is in one sense ridiculous. I mean, it's hard to imagine a, what a tin wall would look like and what shape the tin in Jehovah's hand would take. See, here's the thing. We occasionally find in ancient Near and Middle East documents references to walls of metal. Each time this reference is met, meant metaphorically or symbolism, and it's not literal. So, for instance, in Egypt, Seti I is likened to a wall of bronze and a great wall of copper. Ramesses II is said to be like a wall of iron. And while walls of bronze and iron would symbolize very strong walls, then a wall of tin would represent the opposite. A very weak wall. But there's more. Verse 8 continues the vision. And God asks Amos what it is that he sees. And Amos answers, tin. Now that the word anak, tin, has been used three times, and to this point, frankly, it makes a little sense. We, we, that is, the, 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 the readers or the hearers, are ready for the play on words. In other words, a pun, if you would, to show up now. The Hebrew word for groaning and moaning, when spoken, sounds nearly identical to the word anak. It is anak. Although it's not certain, it is believed that the way the word for moan was vocalized was simply knock. So when we read, someone read and spoke those words back then, it would have been knock and a knock. And now we have our wordplay. Moaning is often associated in the writings of the prophets with coming punishments. City walls made of tin instead of tone, now that's something foolish, of course, that never would have happened, would have been soft, useless, easily breached. 
by the enemy. Thus, the idea is that verses 7 and 8 are symbolic of the moaning and the groaning of Israel as they come face to face with the consequences of their rebellion against God and the defenses of their city walls against invaders that they were sure were like walls of iron are actually as though they were made of tin. Now, unlike in the first two visions, when God consoled or comforted Amos, here in the third vision God offers no comfort to Amos. What has been symbolically represented in the vision will come about. What is symbolized is the easy breaching of Ephraim Israel's city walls by an invading army and the resultant moaning and groaning by the city residents as they are put to the sword. God says, I will never again overlook their offenses. And he, in verse 8, the Hebrew word that is used here to speak of overlooking offenses is abar. And it more means to pass by or, or maybe to pass over. God has for a long time passed over or passed by Israel's offenses against him. That is, he has kicked the can of punishment down the road hoping for Israel to come to their senses and to change, but that's no more. The day of reckoning is about to arrive, and it will not be delayed, the blow will not be softened. Now, I have little doubt that we've actually only scratched the surface of all this taking place in this third vision, and that there is more meaning that was originally intended here than what we've just been discussing, although I confess I don't know what that is. Yes, that's the nature of more than a few challenging biblical passages that were written for ancient people who did understand the intent. Now, verse 9 opens somewhat curiously. It employs the name of Isaac. I mean, Isaac, Jacob's father, gets mentioned, I think, more for poetic value than for any substantial reason. The high places of Isaac, the sanctuaries of Israel. What this is, is it represents a typical Hebrew poetic couplet. The message being given is that regardless of the great and the lofty place that the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, hold before God and before Israel, Nonetheless, the entire religious establishment of Israel will be brought down, and along with it the royal line of King Jeroboam, his dynasty, is going to be brought to an end. So everything that represents the leadership of Ephraim Israel, their religion, their historical monarchy, it's going to be no more. God says He will attack Jeroboam by means of the sword. Now, nearly always in the Old Testament, when punishment is said to be brought by the sword, it is due to a serious violation against the covenant of Moses. This is emphasized when the Lord says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Jehovah personally will punish the monarchy of Israel for the rebellion against Him. Israel's kings were to rule righteously as God's appointed representatives on earth. Jeroboam, however, was the epitome of a king's unfaithfulness as he ruled as his pagan neighbors ruled and worshipped as his pagan neighbors worshipped rather than as the Torah said he ought to rule. At verse 10, a pause in the visions occurs. Here a confrontation of sorts happens between the recognized head of the religious establishment of Israel, that's Amatzia, and the current representative of God on earth, Amos. And very quickly the confrontation turns political in nature. Amazia, no doubt the chief priest of Israel's religious cult, sends a letter to the current reigning king, Jeroboam II. 
And in this letter, he exploits a very explosive accusatory word that any king in any era would have to give ear to. Conspiracy. Amos is accused of conspiring against King Jeroboam, inherently meaning to foment a rebellion for the purpose of a change of government leadership. Now, these words would be especially sensitive to King Jeroboam since his own dynasty that began with his ancestor King Jehu, well, that was the result of a prophet of God, Elisha, inciting a conspiracy to overthrow the dynasty of Omri. Now, it might sound strange to imagine one of the Bible's great prophets to get so involved in Israel's politics as to foment a rebellion against the sitting Israelite king, but it did happen, and it happened at God's command. So precedent for it had been established. Prophets wielded serious power in ancient Israel. Here's the story of Elisha inciting rebellion. It's found in 2 Kings. 2 Kings started at verse, uh, chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Elisha the prophet summoned one of the guild prophets and said to him, Prepare for traveling. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to remote Gilead. And when you get there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Enter, have him step away from his companions and take him to an inside room. And then take this flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, This is what Adonai says, I have anointed you as king over Israel. After that, open the door and get away from there as fast as you can. <laughs> oh yeah. So the young prophet left for remote Gilead, and when he arrived, he found the senior army officers sitting there, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu asked, for which one of us? For you, commander, he said. So Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on his head and said to him, This is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I have anointed you king over the people of Adonai, over Israel. You will attack the house of Ahab, your master so that I can avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of all the servants of Adonai, bloodshed by Jezebel. The entire house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every male, whether a slave or free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Achia. Moreover, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the dumping ground of Yisrael, and there will be no one to bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Now, although Amaziah's accusation against Amos wasn't entirely true, Amos was not conspiring with others to overthrow Jeroboam. Jeroboam did have every reason to believe it may have been true. I mean, after all, considering this long series of diatribes, and Amos' prophecies about the wicked government leadership of Israel that was leading the nation into certain destruction, and also about the blasphemous leadership of the state religion that was headquartered in Bethel and led at that time by Amatzia, who in turn led the people into idolatry, it's no wonder that both the priest of Bethel and King Jeroboam would believe that a conspiracy to rebel is exactly what Amos was doing. Amos indeed was prophesying that both the priest of Bethel and King Jeroboam were going to be overthrown. But it would not be any Israelite rival. It would not even be a rebellion of the people, but rather it would be at God's hand that it would happen, and that the new government would be of foreign enemies. Now, although we're not told, very likely Amatsia knew about Amos firsthand. It's also probable that Amos did much of his prophesying in Bethel. It's equally probable that in verse 12, when Amatsia addresses Amos, he does it face to face. He tells Amos, stop prophesying here, and instead go back to Judah, earn his money from prophesying there. 
Well, indeed, in that era, prophets, legitimate and illegitimate, were paid by a patron to prophesy. Now, I'm sure it was especially galling for Amatia, for a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah to have the nerve to come north and prophesy terrible things against Ephraim Israel, right in the mi middle of their religious center, no less. Well, verse 13 makes it clear that Bethel was the royally authorized place of religious practice for the northern kingdom. It was Jeroboam's replacement of Jerusalem, if you would. There is also another factor at play. At that time in history, Ephraim Israel was wealthy. They were internationally admired. They were seen as a place of sophistication and progressive thinking. Judah, on the other hand, well, it was viewed as a place populated by simple country hicks, where the ancient religion of the Hebrews was still practiced in a conservative way as it had been for centuries. See, it's a strange phenomenon that has existed for millennia, I suppose, that is generally believed among a society's elites that only the primitive and unintelligent worship and obey God according to the long-existing ways and commands He established in years past. seems that with the rise in wealthy and worldly knowledge, the accumulation of opulent material possessions as a goal, the desire of the elites to be internationally connected and accepted and admired, and a belief that our human intelligence is now so great that it dictates that we have the right, if not the duty, to continually remake our morals, our ethics, our faith, to reflect the ever-changing wants and pleasures of our advancing societies, that it just seems natural for them to want to do that. Therefore, those who embrace such advances at the same time tend to automatically shun those who continue to believe in and practice the morals, ethics, and faith as originally established. See, we see this sort of attitude in living color in our modern world. Today, as throughout the West, a battle for the souls of nations heats up. Therefore, it ought not to be too hard for us to understand how progressive, proud Ephraim Israel viewed conservative Judah. And when I speak, by the way, of progressive and conservative, I mean that in an academic way, not in political terms. This worldview made it all the more chafing for Amatia to have to listen to this prophet from backward Judah condemn the progressive ways of Ephraim Israel, and especially when it was happening right there at the center of Israel's religious elite, where the king himself would worship. Well, Amos responds to Amatzi in verse 14. He tells him he's not a trained guild prophet, that, that his being a prophet is not his profession. Rather, his identity is as a sheep breeder and a grower of figs. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this verse and the next one. The wording, when we read it in Hebrew, is actually rather ambiguous. Most modern English versions gloss over this ambiguity and instead take the standard stance and just kind of move on. The issue is this. The wording could say that Amos denies he's a prophet, but then that contradicts what he says next. Or it could say he is a prophet, but he's not a classically trained one, or that although he was sent to prophesy, he didn't actually come as an official prophet. What we can know for certain is that Amos makes it clear to Amatia 
he does not make his living by means of delivering messages from God and getting paid for it. Rather than spend a great deal of time with this conundrum, even though I wanted you to know that this difficulty legitimately exists, I feel pretty confident in understanding this passage to say something like, yes, I'm a prophet, but I'm not a member of a prophet guild. Or, I'm a prophet, just not a professionally trained prophet. I believe that my assertion is backed up by what follows in verse 15. Verse 15, Amos explains that Jehovah took him away from his occupation of sheep breeding and, and fig cultivating and sent him to prophesy to the people of Ephraim, Israel. That is, his was a sudden, it was an unexpected divine calling. It wasn't an occupation of choice. This is very much in the mold of what God said when He chose the shepherd David to be king over Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Therefore say this to my servant David, that this is what Adonai Zebaot says, I took you from the sheep yards, from following the sheep, to make you chief over my people, over Israel. Biblically speaking, the offices of king and prophet were to be a specific calling from God not merely a professional position one seeks to occupy. In the Torah we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, When you have entered the land Adonai your God is giving you, you have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me, like all the other nations around me. In that event you must appoint a king, the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, this king you appoint over you. You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. A few verses later in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 18, verse 15, we read, Adonai will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among yourselves, from your own kinsmen. You are to pay attention to it. So speaking for God, or operating on His behalf, was always meant to be of a divine calling coming out of heaven individual by individual, than it was a trained profession that comes from an academy or a guild. This is not to say that as the world's population has grown and as the Hebrew faith has spread to all parts of the world, that professional training for new faith leaders isn't needed, or that to make it a full-time occupation is somehow wrong. Rather, the defining issue is about how one views it. On what basis one makes the decision to serve? Is it about seeking a stable job that pays well enough? Wanting a comfortable working environment around nice people? An aim to earn a living that doesn't require too many hours or too much hard work? Or, as it was much more so not that long ago, a person of the cloth is given a title that is admired and respected and gives one authority and special standing in his or her community. Alternatively, do you feel God is tugging at you, is calling you out to serve Him in a special way? A way which may not bring with it security or steady hours. A way that is far different from anything you've indeed been trained to do or ever experienced, and so it's a little bit of a scary thought. A way for which you know going in, you're totally unqualified. Amos is of the latter, not of the former. Amos wasn't looking to be a paid prophet, and very likely was quite successful and comfortable at sheep breeding and tending his fig trees. I imagine it never occurred to him that he was going to become a prophet of Jehovah. And although we're not told, it seems that his sudden change of direction happened without him seeking it, or wanting it, or needing it. Rather, Amos was merely obedient to God's unexpected call. God told Amos, go prophesy to his people, and he did. Well, verses 16 and 17 puts Amos on the offensive. Now, he's listened to the pompous 
Amatia ordered him to stop stop prophesying, and now Amos tells Amatia the reality. This reality is explained not by Amos's words, but rather by God's oracle. For the crime of Amatia attempting to muzzle Jehovah's prophet, the Lord says in Amos seven seventeen, "Your wife will become a whore in the city." Your sons and your daughters will die by the sword. Your land will be parceled out with a measuring line, and you yourself will die in an unclean land, and Israel will certainly be exiled from their land. I think we could rightfully call this being read the riot act. Amatia has proven himself to be a suppressor of God's truth. He prefers his man-made religion, with all of its accompanying doctrines, to God's Word. Therefore, five curses are leveled against Amatia. The first is directed at his wife, who will be forced into shameful prostitution, simply in order to survive. The second aims at Amatia's children. They will die violently. While losing a child is devastating. The reality, especially in Bible times, was the loss of all of one's children means the family bloodline comes to an end. Third, Amatsi's land will be taken from him and divided up. Losing all his property means he has no inheritance to pass along. Fourth, Amatsi himself is going to die in exile on unclean foreign soil. Unclean land means any place where God isn't. Recall that the belief in that era was that gods operated only within specific territorial boundaries, so they had no power or influence outside of it. So Amatsia's God wouldn't be present with him in exile, and therefore the very land on which he resided would be rendered unclean. Fifth, Amatsia will be deported, along with the surviving <clears throat> common folks of Israel. Still at this point, Nemesis is prophesying he has yet to identify the foreign invader, or the place to which Israel will be exiled, or exactly when this is all going to be coming about. Okay, we'll move into chapter 8 next week, beginning with Amos's fourth vision. Okay.